From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Battlefields Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Faint, once again bringing you stories from the front lines and the home front. As usual, if you like what we're doing on Battlefields, please share this podcast and leave us a five-star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest, our contact information is in the show notes. Today's guest is Frank Pock. Frank graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and was commissioned into the Military Intelligence Branch before becoming an Army aviator. After leaving the service, Frank worked for 28 years as a supervisor in a trucking company and became involved in political activism. A prolific writer, you can find Frank Pock's work on his personal blog and featured in The Havoc Journal. Hey, Frank, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Hey, Frank, uh, we were talking before the show, you've got a very interesting and, and varied background. I think it's kind of unusual. I'd like to explore that from the beginning. So if we could, let's go all the way back to the start of your military career, why you applied to West Point, any of your memorable experiences there, and, and what you branched immediately after. Okay. Reason for going to West Point, twofold. One, I didn't have, I was the eldest of seven boys in my family. My dad told me flat out, he's not paying for college. I wanted to go to college. And I guess I wanted him to be proud of me. So that was the reason I went. I was told once I got there that wasn't a good reason. I stole somebody else's slot. Yeah, when I was a when I was a new a new cadet, you know, they we were sitting at the table, you know, during Beast Barracks or whatever we called it at that time, and uh, the upperclassmen went around the table and said, "Okay, why'd you why'd you come to West Point? Why'd you come to West Point?" And most people had, you know, politically correct answers. You know, I want to make, I want to serve my country. I want to do this. I want to do that. I told him I didn't have any money for school. I want to make my dad proud. And he told me, you don't belong here. Ouch. Well, I think that's a completely legit reason. I didn't go to West Point, as you know, Frank, but I have taught there for eight years. I think self-interest is a legitimate motivator. I think that's a very good reason to go. But certainly you decided to stay. You could have quit after two years without any repercussions. At least that's the way it is now. So why did you stay? Was it was it because of the college or did you find something else while you were at West Point that made you want to stick around? Out of sheer spite. Because every step of the way, somebody told me it wasn't good enough. So I, I wanted to prove them wrong. <laughs> hey, I think that's a great answer, Frank. Well, you must have done pretty well there because you were able to branch military intelligence and then get into the aviation at that time. As you were explaining to me earlier, aviation was in its own branch but you were able to fly after branching military intelligence. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? That's that's pretty amazing and something that doesn't happen anymore as far as I know. Well, the other alternative, I wanted to go aviation. I, I wanted to fly. So the choices at that time were you could go MI. There are four slots available total for MI aviation. That was it. If you didn't get those and you went combat branch, you, you know, you, 
artillery, ADA, armor, infantry, one of those. And reason for, reason for that is that, say, things didn't work out with flight school for whatever reason. Then you, f- you fell back on your original branch. Uh, I had a classmate, you know, we're still friends. He could have had that MI slot. He was, he was higher up than I was. But he, he decided for reasons that are still mysterious to me to go infantry. Uh, so we both wound up at flight school. And well, before you went, into, before you went to flight school, you had to take uh, a, a flight physical pass that. And then when you got there, they had you take another one. Well, his eyes weren't good enough on the second one. So he said, no, you're not going to fly. You're going to be a grunt. And, they, and not only that, but they sent him to uh, Fort Irwin. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's how that worked. Well, it sounds like you got the better end of that deal, Frank, going out to Fort Huachuca and then learning a little bit about MI and then becoming an aviator. That sounds that sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah, it, it was it was good. Uh, aviation was a challenge for me. I mean, there's some there's some people that are natural pilots. I was they have this kind of innate coordination. You know, they can think three dimensionally. They're just they're just meant to do it. I'm not one of those. I had to work at it a lot. I, you know, I was explained once to me that flying a helicopter is like uh, patting your head, rubbing your tummy, and bouncing on a bowling ball at the same time. And that's pretty accurate because you're, you're using all, you have to coordinate all this stuff simultaneously. You know, in the first, what was it? First four weeks, that was kind of the initiation. They had, they had us flying, uh, these training helicopter TH-55s, they look like a, an orange with a pencil stuck on the back, reciprocating engine. And they didn't have uh, military instructor pilots. They had, they farmed it out to somebody, you know, some vendor, Acme Aviation or something. I don't remember. But it was all, all, all these retired guys, you know, retired pilots. And the guy, they had us in groups of three for flight school for, and, you know, the three of us would, would have a, an instructor pilot. And he, take each of us out individually. And the guy we had was uh, Mr. Vernon, who had been a Marine fighter pilot in the Pacific in World War II. <clears throat> so he was pushing, he was ahead of me in the 60s when we met him. Yeah, he had this crew cut, the kind of toothbrush, bristle, mustache. He had scars, and that was because they removed some cancerous skin from all the time he had been in the Pacific. Yeah. The guy lived on coffee, cigarettes, and bourbon. When we go up and fly with him, he would light one cigarette off the other. You know, just toss it out the side. Well, in the in the cockpit, he's chain smoking in the po- cockpit while he's Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing was is that after I don't remember exactly how many hours, I think the minimum was 10, but could go up to like 20 hours of flight time. You you went solo. Or you, or you didn't stay in the program. You know, you're going to go solo. You know, so he's, he's the first ten hours in the aircraft. All he did was emergency procedures. You know, so they they had a reciprocating engine on it, and it had a throttle like on a motorcycle out on the collective. And so you could, if you if you cranked up the throttle, you had it at full speed, but you could pull it down to idle. 
Uh, you, you couldn't turn it off once in the air. They had a fail-safe thing, they would kick it back. But one of the things that we you know went over and over again was what happens to do it. What do you do with the uh, engine failure? That was one. Of, that was the big emergency procedures you had to do before you could go on your own. And you know what you do is if the engine quits, you get the main thing is to keep the rotor spinning at the at a high speed. Or to do that, you take all the pitch on them. Otherwise, it's creating lift, but they're also slowing down. And you do that by lowering the collective, uh, pushing the nose forward, get some more airspeed, keep air flowing through it. You know, at the same time, you're trying to pick out some flat area without trees to park this thing. And when you get to like eh, 30 feet or so, you're supposed to pull in the pitch again provide this cushion of air that allow you to land safely. You have one shot at this. This is it. This is, you know, and, and so you know, Mr. Vernon was pretty adamant that you know how to do this. Yeah, what he what he do is around Fort Rucker, there's dozens and dozens of aircraft. You know, it's like this beehive, and there's all these little training areas, little little strips and tarmacs. You know, that they ran out the land from some peanut farmer. And that's, you went from the main airfield there, and that's where you practiced. The only thing you had as far as instruments, you had a altimeter, airspeed indicator, compass, radio. That's pretty much it. You know, don't go in the clouds because you're going to die. Uh, so, you you know, you, you're flying maybe a couple thousand feet. You take off. He's having the, the student fly. He's lighting up another Marlboro. I remember, you know, I'm with him one time and he says, don't you see that guy at two o'clock, you know, over on the right. And so I'm looking out the, the windshield. It's like, I don't see this anybody. Well, that was, that was merely to distract him because what he did is he took, put his hand on a throttle and cut it down to idle. Ooh. Then we dropped like the refrigerator, you know, blades are starting to slow down. Lights are flashing. There's this beeping in the headset, you know, and, and his soothing voice going, well, what the fuck are you gonna do? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, you know. So, like, oh, okay, you know, bottom the throttle, you know, look around, you know, running out of airspeed, altitude, and ideas all at the same time. And we got to like 50 feet. Give me the controls. Okay, you got the control. You know, so he and he he'd done this a million times. So he just, you know, bring the bring the engine back online, pull out, go land somewhere. Light up another one, take a drag, look at me and go, you know, we both would have fucking died, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do with you? <laughs> I don't know. And then, I don't know. Then it was like a couple of days later, he threw me the keys. Here, bring it back in one piece. Well, those positive words of reinforcement in the cockpit, huh? Bro, I, I'm just picturing this in my head, Frank. Well, chain smoking guy and... And then, and then a couple of days later, you've earned his trust, and now you're out by yourself. Well, that's the way it has to happen, though. All right, it, it is kind of a life and death thing. It's one thing if you're up there solo. I mean, that's that's enough responsibility. But at some point, you got a helicopter full of grunts in the back. You're responsible for their lives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got a I got a, a youngest son. He's a iron worker. You know, he walks on top of steel beams every day. Up about fifty hundred feet, does welding, and it, when he and we when he started as an apprentice, they 
first thing I told him, get your ass up there. <laughs> because if you if you don't if you don't go do it like right away, you're you're, you're probably never going to. Yeah, it'd be too scary otherwise. Keep putting it off. Just jump in there and do it. Well, Frank, so you went to the intelligence basic course. Did you have a specialty that that you had while you were in the course? Well, they had I think they had three different paths you could take. You could have, they had comments where you you learn how to listen to Soviet conversations on the radio. They had a human, those were spooks. You know, those were the guys that were practiced being a spy, but you always knew who they were because they had any very conservative suits and they always had shiny shoes. <laughs> and then there were guys like me that were photons. And at that time, I mean, that was all Fred Flintstone technology. You were actually looking at these pictures that had been taken from a satellite or a spy plane, and you looked at them in 3D. You know, it's like those old Viewmaster toys you had, and you could look at, whoa. <laughs> and, you know, and, you, it, and what they wanted you to do, they show some Soviet motor pool near Moscow or, or, or in East Germany, and they want you to pick out what kind of vehicles they were. You know, and all you got is half a half a communist truck sticking out of this garage and by the fender shape you're supposed to know. Well, that that became old after a while. And I noticed that all the instructors had very, very thick glasses on. That didn't seem to be a good place to be prior to aviation. <laughs> yeah, probably not good for the long-term health of your eyes, huh? I, I hear eyes are important for flying helicopters, Frank. Yes, I'm aware of that. <laughs> We first started using night vision goggles when I was flying in Germany. That was, that was like brand new. You know, what they did is they modified regular night vision goggles that the grunts were using and just cut off the top part. Or how did it work? Well, they cut it off so that you could look outside to the front through the night vision goggles, but then you could look down at the instruments. Okay. And that was a trip because... You had no depth perception with the night vision goggles. Depth perception is another big deal with flying. You kind of want to have that. You know, it's kind of looking like a grainy TV picture through toilet paper tubes. We actually went to England to do that. Another Avon. They, I don't know, they cut some deal with the Brits, and we got to go there. It was right by Stonehenge. Oh, wow. Well, and the thing was is that uh, that area, Salisbury Plain, it's a big grassy field. It's like flying over the desert, flying over the ocean. Unless you have some kind of a, a building, a tree, some kind of marker that you, you kind of know the height of it, you really don't know how high you're flying. And I remember the instructor pilot took me up and we had radar altimeters at the time. That was also real new. This, you know, that was like, wow, look at this. <laughs> And he, and he put his hand over it goes, don't look at that. All right, what I want you to do is turn it around 180 degrees and come up to a 100-foot, no, 30-foot hover or something. So I, I did what I you know, thought I was supposed to do. Had the goggles on. He has his goggles on. He goes, how high do you think you are? I think I'm at 30 feet. All right, turn it around again. Did another 180. I, I had to be like at 150. Wow. That's really not a good idea because you, in hovering, you want to – be relatively you want to have the air pushing down on the ground it gives you more more lift but yeah that was interesting well you you after you 
left Fort Huachuca, you went to 7th ID or 1st Cavalry? Which one did you go to? Well, first I went to West Germany. Oh, okay. I went from... Hey, all right. At that time, overseas meant you either went to Korea or you went to Germany. Those are the two options. That's where the Cold War was, and that's where you're going. So, and you always had you always had one overseas, and then you came back to the states. They do another overseas if you stick around that long. So they sent me to West Germany. I was uh, originally with V Corps. We did some Ash and Trash unit with Hueys, and then that got made into part of the Third Armor Division, and that was fairly close to Frankfurt, this industrial burg called Hanna, Hanau rather. Uh, it was an old uh, old Luftwaffe airfield, Fliegerhorst. You know, they, they had old German barracks there, old German telephones that didn't work. You know, it is, and actually, if you flew around in the wintertime, doing traffic patterns for training, you could still see the... Uh, you still see the bomb craters in the woods. Was living in Germany yeah. was living in Germany a good experience? Did you enjoy that? That's where I found my wife. <laughs> well, all right. I made an effort to experience as much of Germany as I could while I was there. I I don't know what your experience was, but over the way things. I mean, we had, the United States Army had already been there. 35 years when I showed up. So this whole American environment that a GI could serve in West Germany and never actually meet a German if they played it right. I mean, you, you know, you got the PS, you got, you know, the riding gun club, you got all the stuff. And I didn't want that. You know, I, it's like, I'm here. I want to see this place. So I, when I was there, I rented an apartment from this elderly German couple in Raffelshausen. The unit I was in, at least for the first year or so, they had a sister a sister unit with the Bundeswehr. Flieg and the Abteilung Dreinwalds. They flew Hueys. And they were in Niederstadt, which was in southern Germany. And we would do, we would trade off. You know, they come up to our place and fly with us for a while. We go down to there. So I used to fly with them. And in the course of going doing some half-assed training mission with down with them, I met I met my wife. But made the whole trip worth it, huh? <laughs> well, it took it to it took everything to a new level because where they were where their airfield was, there they, there were no Americans. Familiarity breeds contempt. The area the the areas of Germany where there are a lot of American bases, they didn't like them. They didn't like the armies, right? Yeah, so get drunk and stupid and yep. So I was, I was in the area where they didn't know any better. And uh, <laughs> I was dating dating my wife. Nobody in her family spoke English. No one her friends spoke English. That's where I learned it. Wow. You know, her dad liked me. He he had been he had been in the Luftwaffe during the war. He was an enlisted guy. Uh, Man, he did the whole thing. You know, he was born in 1920. He was in the Hitler Youth. That it wasn't uh, it wasn't something you chose to do. 
right. mandatory. Right. Uh, he got drafted in 38, 39. He went with the boys to Poland. He was in Italy for a while. He went up on a Russian front with damn near everybody else. Got half a, half his lungs shot out at the end of the war. Wow. Well, but still liked Americans enough for you to date and marry his daughter. Very interesting. Yeah, we got married in her home village. So you went to Germany, and what did you do when you came back? Went back to Mother Rucker. <laughs> I, I, well, I wanted to extend in Germany, and in, in the Army of Infinite Wisdom said, no, no, for your career path, you need to go to advanced course. I don't want to go to advanced course. No, you're going. So they sent me back there. So that was my wife's first real experience in the United States was Southern Alabama. Think about that. Wow. But, it, I mean, it, she did get to go to the Gulf Coast a lot. Or well, like that. My family's from Alabama. They're from Northern Alabama. And interestingly, there was a German POW camp up in that area. That's how my grandfather met my grandmother. He was a cook at the camp and she was a local. So that's okay, another that interesting sense. Alabama Germany tie-in right there. Well, she, I mean, Karen was fine with it. You know, she was a little bit bemused by the Bull Weevil Monument. <laughs> that is a thing, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, and she did, and it, and it just blew her mind that, that we were living in a dry county. I had, that that was impossible to explain. What do you mean they don't do? They don't sell. <laughs> Yeah, I, I imagine, especially to a German, that might be a, a tough sell. What do you mean I can't get beer or wine here? What? What? Yeah. So where'd you go after the advanced course? Uh, then I went Fort or to 7th ID. That Fort or I don't even know it exists anymore. I don't think it does. But that was uh, right next to Monterey, California. Right on the coast. And uh you know, their big deal then is that, you know, they, they were light infantry. So they didn't have, the only transport they had besides their boots was, were us, <laughs> you know, the, the Blackhawks. So I was operations officer in one of the Blackhawk companies. How many do you have? I think we had 15 helicopters. And you didn't really do any training at Fort Ord, you know, because there's all a really expensive property near there. So you flew down to Salinas River Valley to Fort Hunter Liggett, and that's where I actually did all that stuff. That that was back in the late in second term of, of the Reagan years when uh, the Sandinistas were in Nicaragua. So the rumor was we were going to go to Hondo land. That was going to be it. You know, you get that call in the middle of the night, alert, you know, pack everything up, learn your Spanish. We're going. <laughs> You know, fortunately, we didn't. Although we did, we did one time practice putting the helicopters into Air Force like, uh, cargo planes. Well, interestingly, I was born at Fort Ord. A little, uh, really? Yep. Yep. And yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it exists as a military base anymore. I'm sure it's some high end housing development and a golf course at this point. But yeah, I was born there. I don't remember anything about it because my dad was there. He was an infantry officer, but it was part of some type of aviation test unit out there. I don't know any more information than that. And right, I was born there and we left soon after. I'd never been back. I heard it's beautiful though. Oh, we loved it. Yeah, you know, that's where I got out. And but we couldn't really stay because it, it was just too expensive to live in paradise. Yeah. 
there's no chance of us ever having a house. None. Zero. So it's like, okay. Well, Frank, why did you decide to get out? It sounds like you were doing pretty well. You're an aviation officer. You had an overseas assignment. You're at Fort Ord. Why did you decide to get out and go do something else? I was strongly encouraged by U.S. Army to find another career path. Okay. Fair enough. They, you know, as you're aware, there's a certain amount of politics in the Army, and I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I drank a lot. So they they encouraged me to, you, know, you really need to be doing someplace else, somewhere else. <laughs> were, you, were you okay with that? Did you have any hard feelings when you left the service? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had plenty of hard feelings. But it, it took me, well, I don't know, maybe only 20 years to get more perspective on it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and if I and if I if I met one of the one of the guys who wrote me a bad OER from that time, I'd probably give him a hug and a big wet one because wow. it's the best thing that ever happened. Okay, but at that, at that time, it stung a lot. Well, what did you do immediately after you you got out at, at Fort Ord? You couldn't stay there, so where'd you go? What'd you do? Well, we stayed we stayed in Monterey for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, first thing I had to do was find a job. And, uh, you know, when I, before I got out, they, you know, I got in touch with this headhunter. You know, they had, they had guys that would help, that would, officers getting out to, to find civilian employment. And apparently I was confused because I thought the guy cared about me. He, he cared about his employers, these corporations that were looking for bodies. And I wasn't what they were looking for. So I kind of floundered for about four months you know, that was before the internet, you know, looking in newspapers right. for jobs, things like that, writing resumes on a typewriter. And it, actually, as far as the civilian market around that part of California, it was all either tourism or agricultural. There really wasn't any industry. There were, you know, what I wound up doing is getting a job with, in a trucking company there. And I stayed with that trucking company for a year and a half. And then we moved to Wisconsin. So did the Army have any type of transition program to help you get out? They have a very well-developed one right now. What was it like for you in the mid-80s leaving the Army? Jack shit. Mm. Just, you know, don't let the door hit you in the ass. <laughs> Thank you for your service and, and then goodbye? Well, quite honestly, my my oldest son who fought in Iraq, when he got out in 2014, yeah, they had a program to help him transition, but he never got to go to it because they kept him on field problems. Ouch. So, yeah, they're, they're, in theory, there is now, you know, alleged help for people getting out of service, but my kid didn't get it. So you you left, you were with the trucking company, and then you moved back to Wisconsin. Is that Was that where you're from? Is that your home state? Yeah, okay. that's where I was from. So your wife's really getting to see the whole country, huh? From Alabama to California, now to Wisconsin. What was, what was that yeah, like? For her? Go ahead. What was that like for her? She liked it. And actually, she was she liked moving here near Lake Michigan. I guess when she was in school back in Germany, way back when, one of the, one of the things in geography that fascinated her was the Great Lakes. Well, here we are. <laughs> Well, what did you do in Michigan? I'm sorry, Wisconsin, when you got back. Got a job with another trucking company. Stayed there for about 28 years. Wow. Wow. It, it sounds like you must have enjoyed that work if you were with them for that long. 
<laughs> There's some things you do to take care of other people. Enjoy would be pushing it. I'd say it was challenging. Uh, it was, and and is that is in a way is trucking was a good fit. I don't know if you know anything about trucking. No, nothing. All right. There's certain industries that attract military. I don't know if you 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 probably know that, or maybe you don't. I don't know. Anyway, like when I the the company I worked for for all those years. I'm sure it had a higher percentage of veterans than most other industries. I know we had at least four Marine vets. There are several of us that were Army. There's one Navy guy. You know, and over years I pondered, you know, so why are we all here? <laughs> what, <laughs> how did this work out? And I think part of it is that, well, I don't know really much about other industries, but trucking has a very rigid hierarchy. I mean, you know who's boss. There's no real question about that. There's no gray areas. You know, it's very mission oriented. I was I was a supervisor all the years. You know, so I ran a dock operation. I had like 20 some guys on forklifts driving around, taking things, putting them into different trailers, whatever. You know, we had dispatchers, but you you give a guy a mission, here, you know, I need you to unload this trailer and load this one up. I need it by this time. Okay, bye. So yeah, 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 people that work there. We're pretty much self-starters and they didn't want any micromanagement just you know tell me my give me my orders and get and get out of my way and let me do my job right and that's, that's what we expected that was expected me and everybody else it's like you know no we're not going to hold your hand <laughs> you're this, if you can't do this you you know once again find another career path so you know under other little things you know we wore uniforms it just People, people in the military seem to slide in there, for, you know, and it felt familiar somehow. Yeah, I can see that with the hierarchy and the lack of micromanagement. I can see that that'd be attractive to military vets and a tangible goal. It's like, hey, I need to do this thing. And at the end of the day, I can see it. And this culture is familiar to me. And even though you got vets from other services, you're all still vets and you're all part of the same big tribe. I can see why that would be attractive. You ever read the book tribe? Yes, actually. It's a Sebastian Younger's book. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I, I talked to him about that book here at West Point when I was here the last time. Incredible dude. Yeah, I I read that after my after Hans, my son came back from Iraq because he was having trouble transitioning back in, like a lot of trouble. And I read I read read tribe. I go, oh yeah, of course. Actually, I cried reading that. You know, just like wow, this this is spot on. And, and what it makes me think of when I was when I was working at the trucking company, people found out that that Hans had enlisted. That was back in two thousand nine, and they found out in two thousand eleven that he was going to go to Iraq. So they like went out of their way to. Put together care packages for him and his unit. Oh, nice. You know, and I never asked them to do that. I didn't say, you know, you feel like doing something nice for my kid. No, they, they just like, no, oh, we're doing this. And there was one guy, one of the drivers, Vietnam vintage. For a long time, we didn't get along. 
I guess maybe because they're both bullheaded and whatever. And he, and then when he found out that Hans was deployed, you know, he, had, he would come to the dock on the dock every day and ask me, hey, how's your boy doing? Yeah, there, and so did so did the other vets. I mean, to a certain extent, there was a tribe going on there. I'm glad you you brought that up, and I can see how how you would think of that book while we're having this discussion about the military tribe. And for me, first of all, Sebastian Younger was just such a a humble and interesting person, and he looked like a retired MMA fighter. Like he just had that affect. He was big. He had a square jaw. He wore this fancy suit without a tie. Just a great dude all around. And for me, Frank, it was unusual and refreshing to see a guy who's not a vet really kind of understand the veteran experience, largely because he was a war correspondent in Afghanistan. And I, I really enjoyed that book. And like like you, it was powerful and impactful for me and a very easy read. It's a tiny book. It's like one big oh, yeah. Vanity Fair article that he slapped a hardcover over and, and and marketed. I think it's great. I think every vet should read it. I, I, what do you think? You recommend it? Oh, I highly recommend it. I, I, I was reading and waiting for a friend to, to meet me in a coffee shop. And I, I, by the time my friend showed up, I was done with it. And I just tore my heart out reading it. You know? Yep. I mean, because... It, you know, Hans got out in 2014. He was at Fort Hood, but he's he spent most of his adult life in Texas. He moved down there. We have family. He, you know, he's he's in his natural habitat now. But he, you know, when he got out, he went to get a job with this fracking outfit in East Texas. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what you know what they look were looking for in qualifications. He he was an armor guy. I think his first calf, whatever it is in Fort Hood. And he, I'm sure, I'm sure that the interview went like, so uh got experience with explosives? Yeah. You don't mind working long hours? No. You want to make a shitload of money? Yeah. Okay. Sign. <laughs> Sounds about right. Because you know, you the fracking thing, they were putting they put the explosives down in a well. You know, so he had to do that. I said he's working like 80 hours. I think he made like a hundred grand. It's pissed away every nickel of it because that's what combat vets do. Right. That's just, you know, people ask me, like, well, why didn't you save some of it? Because he wasn't sure he was going to be alive the next day. That's why. Yes. That's that's the whole game. So he, yeah. And then he, uh, well, he was he was living with a an older gentleman in a the guy's farmhouse in, in Texas. Uh, the guy was like a distant relative. Retired uh, Air Force vet, and he and Hans lived together. The guy was a, a, a widower. Well, at the end of 2015, the house burned down with this guy in it. Hans was at, found out when he was at the in the oil fields. He came back and everything was gone. You know, the, Hans's friend, Hans's dog, basically everything he owned except was in his pickup truck. You know, Hans, all Hans had left was his clothes, his 45 semi-automatic, and his DD-214. That was it. You know, then the, the oil market crashed, so the fracking outfit laid him off. So he was homeless and jobless for a while. Wow. 
it seems to happen to a lot of vets, unfortunately. Yeah, there they do okay for a while, and then something like that happens. That's that's terrible. So, were you able to help him out? Yeah, mostly just listening to him. Uh, like I said he, Hans is a combat vet. You know, he he killed people. He told me about killing yeah. people, not 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 in a bragging way or anything. Yeah, actually, it was very monotone. And he kind of slip it into conversation, like we've talked about you know, ordering a pizza, and then suddenly they have the story. I think that's his unit came. His unit came back from Iraq with everybody. They didn't lose anybody, but he, it was after after they came back that he started losing people, suicides, people having accidents because they're drunk off the ass, you know that kind of shit. He told me, he told me once again, kind of in passing, about when he tried to kill himself. He had his, had his 45, he had a round in chamber, put his head, pulled the trigger, and went click. And he's still here. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, in one way, I'm glad he tells me or, you know, tells me things. On the other hand, as a as a father, I didn't want. I don't really want to know this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that's important for a lot of vets just to have somebody to listen, and not not just someone to listen, but someone who understands. So, I think it's important for vets to talk to other vets or people who have had similar experiences, maybe law enforcement or something like that. I think that even just the act of listening, or the act of writing, or the act of podcasting can be very therapeutic. I've certainly found that. Well, I know, yeah, I know for, Hans will tell me things that he doesn't tell other people. And part of that is because there is nobody else to tell. You know, think of how, think of the, the small percentage of people ever put on a uniform. Right. And a, and a microscopic number of people who actually get into combat. All right, Hans could talk to me because we've both been in the army. You know, his experience is qualitatively different than mine. You know, I never had somebody actively trying to kill me. He did. You know, I did scary shit. <laughs> I know that for, you know, but he could, he could at least, we could relate to, to a certain extent. I could, I could follow what he's going through. I really feel for, for families where, Families of veterans where there, there's nobody else in that family has any idea what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. You know, and even where I worked, the fact that they, there were other veterans there and it, did, it didn't even matter if they were combat or not. It did, you know, no, they, no, doesn't matter. I could, I could tell them things and, and they, and they, you don't have to tell them, tell people much, you know, they just get it. Okay. I go frequently to a synagogue. I'm not Jewish, but I, I go to a synagogue. And, it, and some years ago, after Hans came back from his war, there were a couple of visitors there. They're they're called shlichim. They're like unofficial ambassadors from Israel, and they go to all these synagogues and you know draw support. But they were all both of them were former military. 
because everybody in Israel is former military. So I, I hooked up with one of these guys that I, I asked him, hey, you know, my kids, my kids got PTSD. He's just came, he came back from Iraq. You know, I'd like to talk to you and find out what your take is on this. So it was Christmas Eve, he wanted to get together. Well, did you ever, what was Christmas Eve mean? And we sat down and talked and he was explaining that the situation over there is the polar opposite of what we got, All right? Here, you can't find anybody to talk to. There, everybody knows what, it, yeah. no one talks about it because everybody's done it. I'm retired, so I go to grocery shopping during the day. And there's all these other old farts there. And a lot of them got, you know, baseball caps that, you know, army vet, whatever, you know, something like that. Well, in Israel, I don't do that. What for? Who's going to be impressed? <laughs> you know, but he was telling, he was, the guy was telling me that they have, they have instances of PTSD, but for different reasons. Like he was telling about uh, being at some, checkpoint between the West Bank and Israel proper. And there was a Palestinian ambulance that needed to get to a hospital that was actually in Israel, but they had to search the ambulance. And, they, and apparently the person, you know, the amount of time it took them to do it, their job, the, it was too much time for the guys to survive when he actually got to the hospital. Oh no. But then, then the next day they had you know, another instance like that, and he found weapons. So how do you how do you how do you call that? How do you play that? And what and and how do you deal with that decision after the fact? So yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up. So every year, West Point and Yale University do a trip to Israel and Palestine under what's called PDLI, the Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative, and this subject comes up quite a bit. Seems like a lot of the Israelis are very interested in it because the prevalence is so much in the U.S. And they have a couple of different opinions on it. One of them, like you just said, it's so much of a shared experience here. You could talk to anybody in your family and they'll probably understand what you've been through. Also, a lot of the American experience in, at war is different than the Israelis. So Operation Cast Lead, when they're in their urban fighting getting shot out all the time is very different than my experience of mostly being on the FOB in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I was there for a long time, but my experience there was not the intense combat. And the last thing that they, they opined about is something else that Sebastian Younger mentioned. I think it was in tribes, but it might've been in one of his other books when he talks about how we've kind of over incentivized the traumatic veteran experience inside the United States. We have no doubt many, many people who who have conditions that need help, but also there, there's so much of a financial incentive on it that it that it kind of detracts from people like Hans who nor, who really need it in favor of folks that that have this little cottage industry of trying to get to 100 percent disability in order to get that in that that disability check. So it's very interesting that how that works out. Any thoughts on that, Frank? When Hans came back from the war, I talked to him once about you know, if he was going to get help, get therapy. Hans looked me straight in the eye and said, 
dad therapist for the week. Ouch. Honestly, I think that's the way the military trains people. You know, suck it up, man. Which is, you know, in a lot of instances makes a lot of sense. But if when you really need help, you, you got to give yourself permission to do that. When I retire, I, spend a lot, I, I would go every week hanging out with the boys at the psych ward in the, at the VA center. We, I used to go with a small group from American Legion. We bring them snacks and usually stuff that the VA didn't want them to have, Twinkies, stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm serious. You know, I used to t- and, and most of the guys that were there, or and women too, most of them were my age. They didn't bother. They didn't bother, or did, didn't try to get help until they'd been self-medicating for a solid forty years. Now it's too late. You know, that's that's how that. You know, there's this there's this time lag between okay, I'm kind of screwed up, but and and okay, I'm, I'm I'm getting help now. There were very few young guys there, and there's kind of a ritual when we. When I go there, because all these people, you know, they're in their pajamas and uh, bathrobes, no slip socks, kind of shuffling in the break room. You know, they come up and I'd offer them something and I'd, I'd ask them. I'd, you know, I'd thank them for their service. I'd say, you know, what branch were you in? And they might say Army. And then they, then they ask me, you know, what were you? I was in the Army. Really? What did you do? I flew helicopter. Cool. What, and what did you do? Well, you know, I was artillery. What, you know, suddenly I got street cred. <laughs> it, it, you know, and, and I would listen to them. Sometimes they want to talk. Sometimes they would say, fuck off, dude. You know, fine. Yeah. <laughs> You're the one here. I'm okay with that. But some of them want to tell, really want to talk. Uh, and some, and a lot of them, despite whatever problems they had, they had some hard one wisdom. Like I talked to this one guy, Jim, he had been Vietnam. And this was after I had a phone call from Hans. This was I don't know, 2016, maybe. Hans was telling me that he wanted to go back to Iraq and, and fight alongside the, uh, uh, what do you call them? The Kurdish army. The Peshmerga? Peshmerga, yeah. Hans was saying, yeah. And he wasn't going to be a mercenary because they were going to pay him shit. It was just, he wanted, it was kind of like the guys who went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War in Mer- uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Yeah. Right. You know, he just wanted to, to fight for freedom with these guys. So I went, when I went that night, I went to visit with folks in the psych ward. I was talking to this guy, Jim. And I told him, I said, you know, this one, it's my son. It's a Iraqi war vet, you know. This is the way he's talking about doing. You know, Jim thought for a moment. He looked at me and said, "Well, maybe your son wants to do something good, or maybe he just wants to die." And he's right. <laughs> he's right. I remember talking to another guy. He's a, an older guy, older than me. Okay. Who I, who was there? I mean, all these guys show up because they overdose on something. That's why they're there. Anyway, he was there drying out, and uh, he was telling me his story. And we'd say, this group I was with, we'd say for me an hour and a half, and then the, the folks that were on the psych ward would say, you know, it's time for you guys to go home. Okay. And, it, and it got to be the witching hour, 
And this guy's talk, telling me things. And I said, hey, you know, I got to get going. And he looked at me and goes, well, what room are you in? <laughs> and so I, so I told him, hey, man, I, I don't got a room here. I, I just brought the snacks. And he was really embarrassed. He, he was, because he thought he had hurt my feelings. Oh, okay. And he just looked at me, kind of rubbed the stubble on his jaw and said, I just, I just thought you were one of us. I told him I am. And then he said, I meant that as a compliment. I said, yeah. And that's how I took it. It's probably the best thing you could have said to him, Frank. So did you think that was helping? Did you think that he found that helpful to have that conversation with you? Just have someone that, to talk that talk with that he thinks understands him? I don't read minds. I don't know. It was helpful to me. Quite honestly, they, it was more therapeutic for me to go there and be with them than it's probably for them. I mean, I, I learned a lot. You know, one thing is that there's only a razor's edge between me and, and them. They yep. just screwed up one more time. That's it. That's all there is. There's no reason why I'm not there in a pajamas and bathrobe. You know, I, you know, and looking at some of these guys are in bad shape. So, and I always kept in the back of my mind that, all right, no matter what happened to these guys, these women, whoever's there, at one time, they made a commitment. They put themselves on the line. At, one, at least once in their life, they said, okay, I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve a, a greater purpose, something. And even if the rest of their life was total shit, they did that. And it's got to be, that has to be respected. That much. I agree. For sure. Well, Frank, how did you get into writing? You're a pr prolific writer, and I've I've read I think almost everything that you published on the Havoc Journal. I know you got your own blog; they've been doing it for a long time. What got you into that, and why have you stuck with it for so long? That's how that's how I started my feelings and my thoughts. Are you familiar with Thomas Merton? No, I don't think so. I have to look him up. All right, he was a he was a Trappist monk. He was uh, a writer, uh, mostly religious stuff. But one of the comments he makes is that he's, he's addicted to writing. He died in 68. He wrote because he had to write. Because, I mean, that was just part of him. That's who he was. I'm not nearly as good as, as he was. So to a lesser degree, it's the same thing. I write because I have to write. Frank, do you do you have a particular story that's your favorite or a, fair, a favorite type of thing to write about when you're doing all this blogging? Uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say it's something that I that I like to write about. You know, it's like, well, this is fun to write about. But I like to write about veterans. I especially like to write about my son's experiences. Wait, what he's told me. I mean, I, I put together a book about him a few years back. Did you publish it? Yeah, I self-published it. What's it called? Uh, it's called A Father at War. It's essays. Some of them are about Hans. Some of them about the fact that 
when he was over there, uh, I was active in the peace movement. And some of it's about Zen Buddhism. Some of them just, so it, it, it sort of connects, I think. I didn't want to, I, I had no intention of actually putting it out, but I was, I was on a, a long peace walk with a, a former nun and she said, she read some of my stuff. And she said, I'll get this published for you. All right, go for it. Wow. Wow, that's great that you have your own book out there. Is that something that other people can read? Is it on Amazon or, or anything? Yeah, like it's that? on Amazon. Okay. I'll put a link in the show notes. I don't want to sound like I guess I am promoting it. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> if it, my my feeling about it has been if someone reads it, they're meant to read it. God or karma is going to put it in their hands. If, if people don't read it, then they don't need it. I think it's a great attitude to have about reading. So, Frank, in addition to blogging, how are you spending your time these days? What are you What are you into? Childcare. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I are legal guardians for our toddler grandson, for Asher. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for it. If we didn't take care of him, he'd be in the foster care system. And that's not going to happen. I mean, before we became legal guardians, we were his foster parents. So we got we got plenty of time to get to know CPS and how that how that whole system operates. Yeah. It's there's a lot of good people involved, but they're they're just overwhelmed. So unless things radically changed, we signed we, we got in our 16 years with Asher taking care of him. Yeah, I don't need it. I don't need any more purpose in my retirement. I got enough. <laughs> that that's great purpose. Yeah. Raise that next generation. Well, where do you see yourself in the future? You say you got 16 more years with Asher, then he'll he'll be off doing his thing. What's next for you and your wife? What do you see yourself doing long term? I don't. I mean, what 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 I all right. I study Zen Buddhism, been involved in that since 2005. And one of the things that you, you learn is to be in the moment. If I was any good at it, this conversation would be the only thing in the universe. I'm not good at it. My mind wanders. But as far as planning ahead, none of my plans have ever come to fruition anyway. And I'm, I'm better off for that. So I don't know what's going to happen a year from now. I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. And that's fine. Well, Frank, we've been talking a little over an hour now, and I'm I'm mindful that you've got things going on, a toddler to deal with, et cetera. Just wanted to, to turn it back over for you to you for any last words you might have, any thoughts that you'd like to share or experiences we haven't covered that you think might be relevant. No, that's enough for now. Hey, Frank, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. And I'm looking forward to reading more of your work on your blog and Habit Journal and to checking out A Father at War, which I'm going to order as soon as we get off the phone, off the call. All right, go for it. Hey, thanks, Frank. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another edition of Battlefields, where we bring you true stories from the front lines and the home front. Many thanks to today's guest, Frank Pock, to our editor, Michael Neal, and to our sponsors, the Epoch Times, the Havoc Journal, and the Second Mission Foundation. And most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. God bless and good hunting on your own battlefields.